You are now listening to EPT Podcast, an ongoing series of conversations with field experts in electronics design and engineering. This podcast is being presented by EPT Magazine, Canada's information leader for the electronics industry. I'm your host, Stephen Law, editor of EPT Magazine. Hello, and welcome to this podcast, which includes a conversation with Phil Atfield, Chief Executive Officer of Sukatir Labs in Fall City, Washington State. The firm specializes in developing IoT security for connected or small devices. As a field expert, Phil has a strong background in computing, networking, security, and systems modeling. Phil has also contributed articles to EPT in the past, such as Best Practices for Protecting IoT Devices. This article details effective security solutions for corporate IP at the edge. Okay, Phil, welcome to our podcast. I'm hoping you can provide EPT readers with a thumbnail sketch of Squitter Labs and what you do. And also, do you have any customers in Canada? Thanks, Stephen, for the introduction. Um, the answer to that is yes, we have customers in Canada. It will be from some of the, call them the larger enterprises that we work with um, and places where people would never expect it. And I'll give a brief background of what the company does is um, we actually work with, call it the original equipment manufacturers or the, the solution provider or the company that's actually building the, the product. And by that, I'd mean something like a, a home alarm system, access control, say for uh, a building, HVAC control, energy management, water control, for for large enterprise so think in terms of if you go into you know step into a hospital where you know somewhere in canada i know at providence in kingston saw one of our customers names on the wall right on the thermostat johnson controls so um so they they have a line of they have a line of products called metasys and our software and security firmware are uh, core to that to that line of products very good well as most of our listeners are aware millions of new iot devices are expected to come online in just the next few years securing these devices is an area of significant concern how often are iot vendors experiencing a security breach phil you know if you watch the news anywhere from a couple of times a week to at least monthly it just it just depends what you know what shows up in the news we're aware and we see problems coming before they happen, but it's it's frightening when you, you know, draw the distinction between call it consumer products and what's already, you know, for example, in, in industrial settings or operational settings in in infrastructure or large building management. Um, but it, it, it is it is frightening, actually. It's not going to get better unless unless companies actually invest in improving their products. Well, how do IoT designers ensure their products are designed, manufactured, and deployed without the risk of being compromised? There's a term being used widely in industry called secure by design. And sort of the first step of that is for you know, a company that's going to build a product to step back and, in, and assess their internal business processes that relate to security and even down to the selection of the silicon that goes into the product and then the design development uh, test of the software, manufacturing, rollout, and then managing the system once it's in the field. I mean, it's security is a, you know, it's it's not just a checkbox. It's it's pages of requirements that need to be addressed. And it starts from the point where, you know, the, the, the boards are designed, the parts are selected and goes forward from there. You know, think, think of how long it takes, for example, for a company to do an ECU for a car. It's, you know, typically for them, it's a few years of specification. 
in the world of IoT, we you know we can get a company to market in under six months for a product, and it's it, it just depends on how much help they need. No, no question. Uh, now, the growth of this new area in device and, and computing interconnectivity is not only calling for better network and internet infrastructure, but also stronger and more effective security solutions. What are some of the more important first steps any electronic hardware or software developer should consider to ensure that their designs are protecting the users? So at, at the very heart of it, there's something called a hardware root of trust. And think of it as being a key that nobody knows that actually, you know, when, when you turn your when you turn your desktop PC on, it goes through, you hear, you'll see a screen come up and all of a sudden the software is being loaded and it comes to life. On an embedded system, what, what needs to happen before any of that is the very first software is actually authenticated by either a ROM, so call it code running in metal baked into the chip, or by a state machine, which is pre-programmed and can only do say five things. Pretty dumb, pretty basic, but it has the ability to then load the initial, the initial boot, boot software and perform attestation on that, or basically take a measurement and make certain that that's the real software that it's, you know, so that it should run. And if, even if a single bit flip has occurred, the device should not boot. And if the device is designed properly, in that case, it should fall back and boot from an alternate media and it will still perform the same operation. So starting with the hardware root of trust, then move forward as the system comes to life and every piece of software operating system, the applications should be fully attested, in other words, measured. And sort of the difference between embedded systems or IoT devices and your, your desktop is that they're highly managed. Uh, there's you know, not necessarily even a human involved. So these are remotely controlled typically. Um, they need to have a properly managed infrastructure. For the systems that we provide, you know, if there's a password on it, we're not aware of it because everything we do gets it to the point of our customer building their application. And then those, we call it the stack of software or the application suite. They're so highly managed, there's, there really aren't a lot of gaps for someone to go in and install something or come in sideways because the devices are you know, a small footprint. Um, minimal runtime environment, so, sort of thing where you could, you know, no web browser or anything like that. And they have a very, you know, very, I call it a closed set of predefined functions that they perform. Now, these types of security solutions are seemingly unavoidable. How would you advise IoT developers to build in the cost of protecting their IP and ensuring the necessary security measures? What are the budget constraints that they need to consider? So this is a really good question, actually, because in terms of the system development, when they're doing the design and development, the budget involved will typically be engineering or product development. And they're going to have to get that through whatever you know, financial controls they have in the company. And that's an upfront cost and an investment. There needs to be a driver from the executive suite or the company's leadership to make the commitment to, to, put that, to commit that expense upfront. So call up, that's a design expense. If they have to, um, if they if they have to uh, augment their internal development and test processes, that will be a human expense because they may need they may need to go and hire people. Um, they may also need to implement stronger controls in terms of how they even manage, you know, call it the software repositories for the software they build that goes into those systems. And then the last piece is then once the systems are in the field operationally. They're going to have to, you know, perform care and feeding of these so-called the equivalent of updates over time, and that's more, uh, you know, uh, an expense in the future. Typically offered, you know, they may offer it as a subscript as a subscription service, 
um, but they need to figure out how to price that into their system. And some of those can even be challenging to model given the sort of the transactional nature of updates and how much material needs to move around and all of that. But it, it can all be modeled out. And I'd say the some of the larger enterprises we deal with, they're quite familiar with this already. For the smaller ones, it's a little bit more of a challenge. They need to go through, call it a maturity and growth phase. What are, uh, Phil, I'm hoping you're able to share with us uh, what some of the IoT security regulations globally or North American that are specifically impacting electronic OEMs uh, and, and particularly startups because of how vulnerable they just are given by nature. Um, so it's interesting. So if you did a survey, you'd find California passed legislation or legislation went into effect, I want to say January 2020 and read through it. And what's interesting is you can see the impact of, call it the positioning of, you know, industry interests. Um, what the legislation proposes has good intentions, but it's kind of squishy. And as much as anything, I'd say that's because the people that wrote the legislation really didn't understand what they were trying to legislate and wrote something for the sake of doing it. For, for startups or other businesses, they're further ahead to follow uh, security guidelines from NIST in, in the US. There will be an equivalent from cyber.gc in Canada. And then over in, over in Europe, they'll find ENISA and similarly in the UK. So every country is basically putting together sets of recommendations. I'm not sure where this, you know, where IoT security will land for consumer devices in the long term. It probably would need to be tied to a safety function. In order to you know, in order for anything to be said to be broadly legislated, look to best practices for embedded systems and uh, CSIP, uh, NISA, all of these reading through at the core. They're all laying out the best practices, including hardware root of trust, the how to protect in manufacturing, how to manage the device over its life cycle. The materials there, they just need to understand what it means, and if they don't have the people, if they don't have the employees, you know, say they don't have the skills on staff, then they need to either hire or augment their team to, to get the information that they need. Phil, as a human being, most of us have been the victim of theft at some juncture in our, in our lives. And whether it's uh, somebody has taken your bike, uh, I'm presuming they have done so because they need a bike. Uh, but what are some of the more prevalent reasons why hackers pose these IoT security threats? Primarily, it's about money. Think about ransomware. Yeah. What's the objective? At the end of the day, it's cash. And if it's a high profile target, there's a good probability that they'll get paid. If they can take out infrastructure or a line of businesses. I mean, 20 years ago, even the stock exchanges were being attacked because they were online and their systems weren't secure. They paid the ransom to come back online because it was the fastest way to come back to life. Um, so think of, you know, cash is the motivation. And that's the same for even, you know, in Canada, you've got Interac. So the Payment fraud went through, you know, went to the floor when that was brought, when that was basically brought forward. Um, but if you think of other countries that didn't have that credit card harvesting, what was that all about? Again, just pure theft of money. If I wind the clock forward, think in terms of, you know, consider a system. We have a, a lot of customers that work in machine vision and inspection systems. They're high quality products, and you know, say the same thing for um, say fire suppression. Think of the investment that goes into the software and the system to do high-speed, high-grade inspection of, say, products coming off of a, far, you know, at a, at a pharmaceutical at a pharmaceutical plant. The company has invested a lot of money in a system that it just can't afford to fail. Now, think of what it means of a competitor taking that product, um, opening it up, X-raying the components inside. And this is all perfectly feasible with you know, not terribly expensive technology. 
they can reverse engineer the board and the system. And effectively, if there were no measures taken to protect you know, that software, then they've now ripped off your design. And if that's the company's lifeblood and their reputation, all of a sudden you now have fakes appearing in the field. And the, the impact of that could be a business killer. Um, you know, think of an example already. Um, you're, you know, you're familiar with robotic vacuum cleaners, round ones that run around, videos on YouTube with the cat riding on it in the kitchen. There's actually a lot of intellectual property in that, in that little robot, like literally backed by hundreds of patents. And think of how many uh, copies of those appeared very quickly on the market. And I don't know if the protections weren't taken in, say, the, uh, the manufacturing facility where those were made, then the copies appeared very quickly and looked an awful lot like the original as well. And that company subsequently spent a lot of money litigating patents and, you know, I'd say with, with limited success. Um, and it's just sort of the, the beware of the value of the asset you're putting out there. And we're increasingly seeing more of this, even from things like you know, home, home security cameras. They're worried about the software on the camera being copied too easily because they put a lot of effort into you know, what the camera does. Now, uh, in terms of the impact on an OEM uh, after having suffered theft of its intellectual uh, property, does it differ greatly depending on the type of product or um, I, to your point there with the level of uh, hardware and or software that's uh, embedded in the device, the end device? So if you think of something like a control system that's hacked or broadly hacked, if it can't be securely updated in the field, they may wind up having to literally roll service trucks out with technicians to go and replace, like to replace panel, like replace boards. If you think of, you know, you bought a, a cloned product or an original, if, you know, if you're worried about it, find, you know, find out if you can update it yourself because it's, you know, I'd say that, you know, depending on whether or not it's connected, um, the cost of these can be staggering, especially remediation in the field. So think back, you know, probably 10 years ago, the RSA secure ID, uh, call it the problem they had in the factory. The remediation of that was extremely expensive. So they had to be, you know, think of in terms along the lines of having to go replace for their customers, those, you know, their, their, their ID tokens. Um, and if there were flaws in the software, they had to deal with that as well. I mean, that was expensive for the company and for that business unit, it survived, but that's expensive. And those are the sorts of, you know, try and avoid that if it's, you know, a security function, even like that. Would you say, um, that device firmware is the sweet spot for hackers, and if not, uh, what is? Absolutely. So any connected device, think of it as being, if the device has value, why do I want to access? In the first instance, if it's something like a camera or security system, um, they can gain information. They can completely mess with the system and affect operations, and that turns into ransomware. The second side of it is, you know, you've, you've read about botnets. If you can infect a connected device with a piece of software and bring it into a botnet, then how large does that botnet become if, say, it's now running on you know, 50 million cameras that you've hacked and methodically and systematically identified those cameras because of how they were built? Think of the botnet distributed out on those. Or on, you know, if there's a connected uh, electricity meter in your home and those aren't properly protected, Think of what it means to use those for as part of the botnet for performing other functions. And I mean, botnets can be rented. So it's all part of a, it's basically part of a, call it a, a underground business. And I, you know, I don't want to participate in those and don't want our customer systems to be members of those. Right. 
Now, the nature of most consumer electronic devices is that necessary design iterations are required to remain relevant with the buying public. How do these types of electronic OEMs keep the evolution of their products secure and safe moving forward? So think back, you know, you probably maybe have a satellite receiver or going back years, a set-top box for cable or something like that. And the companies that built those, uh, they were call them the pioneers and the early ones that evolved security of embedded systems. And they did it because of fraud and theft of content. So pay-per-view, uh, subscription channels, that sort of thing. Right. You need to think along those lines in terms of a line of product and evolve with the threats as well. So if you think of something like, um, you know, the, the, the portable uh, point of sale terminal, the little device you know, that somebody would bring to you at a restaurant, you pop your card in, you feed it your pin. Um, those have been evolving over the course of 20 years. And the, the silicon that's inside of those is actually extremely advanced in terms of security functions. And this is, these are you know, readily, they're readily available microprocessors. They can be embedded into systems and there are families of those. And it's sort of look, you know, if you're building a system, look to companies that provide those sorts of products where they have a, history of selling them and the silicon has been through multiple iterations generations to get to where it is and it's constantly being updated so you know new parts every couple of years and they're always adding to the features and if there were flaws they're continuously correcting them okay um i understand sequitur labs recently announced that has officially joined the nvidia partner network with full support for the jetson platform and protection of ip at the edge can you describe for our listeners the importance of this relationship yeah, so NVIDIA is one of the leaders, let's call it in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it, it's because the on the on the Jetson platform, the embedded GPU, the graphical processing unit is uh, call it, you know, a thousand or several thousand effectively small processors clustered together. So it is extremely powerful in terms of performing the AI or ML functions. And if you think back to you know, a vision system or inspection system, the company will have invested a lot of money. And naturally, you know, the NVIDIA, the NVIDIA parts are pretty popular in, in those sorts of deployments or those sorts of products. And the companies are, you know, they've awoken to the reality that the, the models need to be protected, their investment needs to be protected, and then as well, even the data sources um, and, and the products that, you know, so call up the Gazintas and comes out as uh, of those models themselves, they need to protect that data as well. It depends on the function, but you know, put it in a setting and um, they care about it greatly. So for us working with NVIDIA, it's one of the leaders in this space. Okay. What are you seeing as the most common uses of AI or machine learning into IoT designs today? So we have several customers that work in vision systems. So everything from monitoring, say how many people are in an aisle at a grocery store, um, through to inspection systems. So uh, things like, you know, the eyes of the robot in the car factory, pharmaceuticals, uh, even home monitoring. So home monitoring and security systems. I mean, those are, those are quite common for us. Others I'd say will be in maintenance and monitoring where they're, where they're basically looking at uh, aggregation of data coming in from, say, for example, around a building to understand what's going on. Okay. Now, give give our listeners a peek inside the walls of your office space. I'm curious about your team of engineers. They must be coming from very vast disciplines in engineering. The bulk of the company is actually, and I'd say pretty much all of our software developers are Canadians. 
at least half of us have engineering degrees. So my background is actually silicon, silicon design tools for designing silicon and system verification. Um, others have been involved in role operation development of stuff for mobile networks. So call it the handset that you have is actually a really complex embedded system. Your, you know, your Android, your iPhone. Um, so people that have been involved in the hardware and the management development of those. And then we have a couple of others that are extreme specialists. So call them a uh, couple of PhDs in physics. When we have to develop, say, for example, a, crypto a cryptographic protocol to perform an operation or implement a feature, uh, it takes a lot of analysis and a lot of deep thinking. And you know, we hand those over to people who will just spend the time patiently and go through and do a very thorough and detailed design and then implement, um, implement robustly. So the kind of thing where you know, someone like that maybe produces one or two bugs per year in their code. I mean, they're, they're that disciplined. Um, for the others, it's uh, a matter of detail. They, 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 we have to support uh, call it many different types of applications and facets. So they have to understand cryptographic protocols, uh, how to code those. They'll need to be able to read a data sheet for the silicon and interpret what that means because we, we leverage the embedded, call it the, the security functions that are built into the chip. And you have to be able to understand some pretty, uh, call it obtuse language um, and content in order to put the software together to make use of those and then make use of it securely as well to implement a feature. And then on the other side of the company, it's more of the, more, more of the normal uh, people who can communicate this to the rest of the world because too many of us are propeller heads and can't speak the right language. So others who are much more effective at communication, putting the story into context and explaining the, what we do and why, what it means, what the impacts are. And then, and then even to the, you know, even to the less, I call it, you know, more common or the, the usual uh, legal and accounting, just the rest of the business operations stuff. Okay. Now, Sequidier Labs is based in Falls City in Washington State, but you have some uh, personal history with Canada yourself. Maybe provide our listeners with that connection and also leave us with uh, how Canadian customers can access your solutions and services. Yeah. So basically, yeah, I'm, a, I'm originally from Montreal. Um, went to school there, went to school in Kingston, lived in Ottawa for a long time. Um, whole fam actually, whole family is, is still in Canada. Um, several of our developers are actually in Canada. So the company, when, when COVID hit and the rest of the world became virtual, it really didn't impact us because we're, all, we're already in three time zones um, across North America, so Canada and the US. The, in, in terms of the, the products that we provide, it would be more um, we can give names if companies are looking for solutions. If they're looking within Canada, I'd suggest starting with cyber.gc. CA is the website. If they want to reach Sequitur Labs, um, directly go to our website. We all track info. So there's a, a, an automated email submission. Uh, they can contact us directly um, and we'll respond. So we have, we have companies, we work with companies globally. So a lot in Asia, a lot in North America, and a lot in Europe. Well, listen, this has been great. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Phil. Thank you. And uh, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And until next time, take care. Mm -hmm.